You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is part two of the story of Harold Shipman, Dr. Death. we met Fred Shipman, a distant and aloof young man, not the brightest, but a hard worker, who was first introduced to the drug morphine when his mother passed away peacefully due to its effects in treating her terminal cancer. He went on to medical school and met his wife and had a child, and by all accounts he appeared to be a hard-working, dedicated doctor, though he had very few friendships amongst his colleagues and had a slightly higher than normal mortality rate for those under his care. He moved from hospital practice to general practice after a brief stint in rehab for an addiction to the opiate pethidine and built up his list of patients while killing off the select few from the ranks of elderly people, mainly women, who liked the extra attention that they got from Dr. Shipman. He left his second general practice suddenly, causing chaos in his wake and taking his list of patients with him. Now that he was accountable to no one, his behavior became even worse. He was crabby, superior, and disrespectful to those working around him. And he began killing in ever-increasing numbers. Eventually, people began to notice. The first were people who would have been ignored had they brought it up. A taxi driver, care workers, home help, a funeral director. But then, a doctor from another surgery got involved. The investigation into Fred Shipman began. And ended. Who doesn't trust a doctor? But then, he made a mistake. He killed Kathleen Grundy and forged her will, leaving nearly £400,000 to himself, her entire estate. A new investigation began, and Kathleen Grundy's body was exhumed a month after her burial. The game was up. On the 19th of August, 1998, Shipman arrived to the surgery where he was still practicing to be met by journalists and photographers. The word of the exhumation had finally reached the press, and they wanted to hear from the doctor who was at the centre of the case. He calmly got out of his car and seemed completely unfazed by the attention. He said that the photographers had five seconds to take a photo, but apologised, saying any questions were to be directed to his solicitor. Shipman's mood vacillated between calm and controlled to emotional, complaining that he was worried that he was being targeted for something that he had not done. The police investigation ramped up, and they looked at the deaths that had occurred over the last year recorded by Shipman's surgery. They could have no idea at this stage how large the investigation would become and how many deaths they would ultimately investigate. They gathered all the death records from the practice, dating back to September 1997, some six months. Then they scored the deaths out of five, based on whether the body had been buried or cremated, 
if the family was concerned about the circumstances of the death, and if there was anything unusual like property missing or inconsistent medical records present. If all the factors were present, then the case got yet another point, and it was marked as top priority. This made the list more manageable. The police started out with 14 deaths to look at more closely. Shipman cooperated with the investigation, but he was disdainful of the officers he was dealing with. This was no doubt aided by the fact that, even though there was an ongoing investigation into suspicious deaths associated with the surgery, Shipman was still practicing as a GP. When a detective arrived to copy the medical records of patients, Shipman was disparaging of the officer, acting as if the guy didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know that the man who was going to look over them would play a role in his downfall, and that Shipman wasn't as computer savvy as he had thought. There was also a media circus to contend with. No one had been charged with anything in the early days of the investigation, and therefore it was free game for the press. Restrictions in reporting only snap into place when someone has been charged, and it's then considered subjudicier to prevent any jury from being influenced by press coverage. Beyond this, these subjudicier rules don't apply outside the jurisdiction of the UK, and so the international attention on the case was also huge. Potential witnesses were warned to stay away from the press, as if a case was then brought, their testimony would be considered tainted if they had spoken to the media. But the press attention, coupled with the lack of information coming from the investigation, resulted in a rumour mill starting up in Hyde. A lot of people thought that Shipman was in fact being wrongly targeted, and that there were efforts being made to discredit a hard-working and caring GP who was an asset to the community. Or some people thought perhaps Shipman had killed patients, but only patients who had wanted to die. Maybe Shipman was some sort of spokesman for compassionate, consented to euthanasia. Also super illegal. On September 2nd, the toxicology report for Kathleen Grundy was in. There were large amounts of diamorphine found in her body, which had resulted in her death. A murder inquiry began. Harold Frederick Shipman was arrested by appointment the following Monday on the 7th of September at the local police station. Shipman was accompanied by his solicitor. He was charged with the murder of Kathleen Grundy, attempted theft by deception, and three counts of forgery. On the 21st of September, the second exhumation took place, a former patient of Shipman's who had been identified by the scoring system that the police had put in place. Now that they had the results of Kathleen Grundy's toxicology report, it would be much easier and faster to get results for people they thought were likely killed by their doctor. Morphine is a drug that does not degrade as decomposition sets in, and so therefore, as long as there was a body to exhume with intact tissues, the police would be able to gather evidence. And that was what they found in Joan Melia's body when she was exhumed. She was, yet again, a sprightly and energetic 73-year-old woman who, before her death, had just returned from a holiday to Menorca. She went with the man she called her boyfriend, of 20 years. They had gotten together after her marriage broke up. They never lived together, though. Joan wanted to maintain her independence, 
and it was for this reason that Shipman didn't know of the man's existence. Joan had emphysema and asthma on and off, and went to see her doctor when she thought she may be coming down with a chest infection. She was looking forward to her next holiday and didn't want to be ill. Derek, her boyfriend, waited for her in his car and then drove her home after the appointment, dropping her off at hers, but saying he'd be back around five. When he came back, his knock on the door went unanswered, so he let himself in with his key. Joan was sitting in a chair, which was unusual, and was cold to the touch. Derek rang Shipman, who seemed shocked at the man's presence in Joan's house, and arrived to declare that she was dead before he even so much as touched the woman. Her cause of death was listed as breathing issues. There was money missing from the house. The next night, Winifred Meller was exhumed. They couldn't get the earth-moving vehicles to the graveside, and the grave had to be dug out by hand. She too had been 73 years old. She was widowed and had five children and was heavily involved in the local Roman Catholic Church. She volunteered for the Vincent de Paul charity and helped kids to learn to read at the local church. She died on May 11, 1998. She had cancelled her lessons with the children at the church, saying that she had a chest infection, but would be available later that week. She had made some plans with friends to go out that evening after collecting her pension, but one of her neighbours had a knock on the door at about half six that evening. It was Dr. Harold Shipman, asking if they had a key to Mrs. Meller's house. He was knocking, and he could see her through the window, but she wasn't moving. When he got into the house, he announced to the neighbours that it looked as if she had had a stroke. She was sitting in a chair, with one sleeve rolled up, like she had just had an injection. Her pension money was missing. The local parish priest, Father Dennis Maher, helped her bereaved children make arrangements, although Shipman too had offered to help the family in this regard. More unusual behaviour for a GP. On the 28th of September, the body of Bianca Pomfret was exhumed from the cemetery in Hyde. Remember, she was the lady who had been quite young and had suffered with manic depression. Another five bodies would be brought up in the investigation into the murders committed by Harold Shipman. Her exhumation was only documented by the police and a single reporter. The rest would be attended by swarms of press and the police officers would direct their arc lights, used to see what they were doing in the cover of darkness, to dazzle the photographers and prevent them from getting the picture they wanted of the coffin being brought above ground. The police continued the exhumations into December of that year, gathering evidence against Shipman. Alice Kitchen was exhumed on the 11th of November. She had died in June of 1994. She had eight children and lived with two of her sons at the time of her death. She was 70 years old. She had been in the house on her own when Dr. Shipman called to see her. He called by at four and said he left a note saying that Alice had had a small stroke and had refused to go to the hospital or have any of her family called. When her son Mark arrived home at half six, he found the note and his mother dead on the couch. He rang Shipman, who said she must have had another stroke after he left. The family were angry at the doctor and accused him of neglect, but they decided not to pursue it, however, because they had been told by Shipman 
that even if she had been found before her death, she would have likely been permanently disabled. The family thought maybe it was a blessing in disguise that she had passed before somebody could find her. They never suspected that Shipman had actually been fully responsible for their mother's death. Unfortunately, in Mrs. Kitchen's case, when the exhumation occurred four and a half years after her death, there was not enough intact tissue to test for the presence of diamorphine. Thursday, the 11th of July, 1996, Irene Turner, a 67-year-old active widow, died. She was a diabetic, but it didn't interfere with her living a full life, and she managed her illness well. She called the doctor that day. She had a bad cold and asked for him to call out to her. She chatted to a neighbour and gave her son-in-law, who had called round at one, a list of shopping that she needed. The doctor arrived just after three and then called into a neighbour of Irene's to ask if she would go over to help her pack some things to take with her to the hospital. Just wait a few minutes, he said. When the neighbour, Sheila Ward, headed over to meet Irene five minutes later, she found Irene lying on her bed, dead. The doctor returned and confirmed her death, stating that, quote, the diabetes was all through her body, end quote whatever the hell that means. Officially, her cause of death was listed as heart disease and circulatory failure. But when she was exhumed, the post-mortem uncovered a massive amount of morphine in her body. That was what had really killed her. Muriel Grimshaw was another woman whose death was first suspected by a neighbour. On a July morning, Muriel didn't answer her neighbour's knock, and so her only child, her daughter Anne, was called, and she let herself into her mother's flat. She had only been with her mother the previous day. The 76-year-old had gone to church with her in the morning, and when she had left her mother, she was happy and had no complaints. And yet, there she was, lying on her bed, fully clothed, with the TV on and the curtains wide open. Muriel had died sometime the day before, Shipman was called and put down stroke as her cause of death. Unlikely, given that she was lying prone on the bed and didn't appear to have had any spasms before her death, as is common in stroke victims. In her medical records, an entry had been inserted the day before she was found, indicating that she was at risk of stroke. But she'd never been to the surgery the day before. Jean Lilly had angina. She was young only 58, when she died. She had been suffering from a bad cold, and her husband had finally managed to get her to agree to call the doctor. Shipman arrived at lunchtime. Jean had spent the morning chatting and having tea with a neighbour, Elizabeth Hunter, who saw the doctor as he arrived. When she noticed that, 45 minutes later, the doctor still hadn't emerged from Jean's house, she got worried and headed over there. She passed Shipman as he was leaving, and went into the house when Jean didn't respond to her call. Mrs. Lilly was on the couch, cold. Elizabeth rang for an ambulance, and when Shipman arrived back to the house, she accused him of leaving the woman dead in the flat on her own, figuring that she must have been dead for some time, given that Jean's body was cold when she had found her. 
Shipman was the one who rang Jean's husband, Adrian, and after some rather bizarre small talk, he broke the news that his wife had died after refusing the doctor's advice to go to the hospital. Marie Quinn was a 67-year-old widow who was also involved in the local Roman Catholic Church and went on pilgrimages with a group of fellow worshippers. Her only child, a son named John, lived in Japan where he was teaching English. Shipman rang the Massey's undertaker the evening that she died. He had been in the house when it happened. He said Mrs. Quinn had called him that evening because she was having pains in her arm and that she had died just after he had arrived. There was nothing he could do, he said. Later, during the investigation, Marie Quinn's phone records were analysed and no phone call to Shipman's surgery occurred that day. She was reported as having died of a stroke. All of the exhumations had taken place with the permission of the deceased families, so no warrant was required. The coroner, John Pollard, still had to consider each request for permission to exhume the bodies, however, and he was careful to consider them in isolation from one another, and to not simply give permission on the basis of all the others. He had to be shown by the police that there was evidence that merited the emotive act of disturbing the dead. A helpline for patients or family of patients of Dr. Shipman's was set up by the health authority, and it was bombarded by calls in the first week. Some of those calls gave the police further names of suspicious deaths associated with Dr. Shipman. It came to a point where the investigators had to decide when enough was enough and to stop the exhumations. When did they have enough evidence to stop inflicting trauma on the families of the deceased and the community at large? The final exhumation was of Elizabeth Meller on the 9th of December. She had died on the 30th of November, 1994. Again, she was a widow and had one living daughter, Shirley. She had suffered a stroke the year before, and when it became clear that she was having difficulties getting in and out of her second-story flat, there was a local campaign run by her doctor, Fred Shipman, to have a handrail installed on the few steps up to her door. She was close with her downstairs neighbours, who would watch her tend to the garden outside of their window. That morning, they heard her moving about, but when the chemist called round with her prescriptions, she didn't answer. In fact, her house remained quiet for the rest of the afternoon, and when it got dark, her neighbours got worried, and they called her daughter. Lizzie Meller was found dead, sitting in a chair in her living room. Her glasses and the book she had been reading had fallen and they were on the floor next to the chair. When Shirley rang Dr. Shipman, he said, What's the matter? She was all right when I left her. Ten days after his arrest, Shipman's lawyers applied for bail at Manchester Crown Court. Primrose had rung around all their contacts, and given the lack of information available at the time, so soon after the charges, people were still very supportive of him. But despite the substantial amount of money that they were able to raise, the judge decided that Shipman should be kept on remand. All the medical records from the surgery were copied. The system had been updated in 1996 to a program used specifically for doctors. It also meant that each entry had metadata of date and time of creation, making it much easier to see when entries had been inserted into the records after the fact. 
This information found by the police would elicit Shipman's strongest emotional reaction. He said nothing when charged with an additional three murders of Bianca Pomfret, Joan Melia, and Winifred Meller on the 5th of October. He had no reaction. But during the interrogation in which the police put the evidence of the, so to speak, doctored records to him, he completely broke down. A doctor was called due to his distress, and the interview was terminated. Whether this was genuine or an attempt by Shipman to buy some time after realising that the police had more on him than he had thought possible, we can't know. When he was arrested initially, he had bought time with a number of ploys, first insisting that he consult with his solicitor with regards to the meaning of the charge in caution, then by refusing to go through his CV with them, probably in order not to reveal his previous conviction for forgery, and after that by refusing to allow access to his own medical records. He was interviewed for six hours that day and remained calm throughout, if not always cooperative. He said he actually wanted the police to examine the medical records, thinking that there was no way that they would find out that they had been altered. But when presented with the evidence from the hard drives that had been seized, he began to flounder. The police told him that they had enough to charge him with the murder of Winifred Meller on the computer evidence alone. They didn't even really need the evidence of the morphine overdose. Shipman's solicitor, Anne Ball, had the interview halted again. When he was formally charged with the additional three murders, he appeared shaken in the courtroom, crying and looking pale and drawn. He swayed on his feet and had to be helped to stay upright by the security guards that flanked him. He was put on suicide watch back in the prison. But soon after this breakdown, he was back to being his arrogant, rude and sarcastic self. The police decided that there was no point in interviewing him further, that they would either face a difficult and insulting man who had no problem calling the interviewers stupid, or a gibbering mess. They had hoped for a confession after the change in demeanour, but they never got one. The police decided that they wanted to go further than they had so far in their investigation, and, and with the evidence provided by the medical records, they decided to look into deaths that it could be proven Shipman had killed the patients even where the body was not available due to cremation. In February 1998, he was charged with the murders of a further six women. In addition to the medical records, they also had phone records from the various victims' houses, which showed that they had not called the surgery and also lacked any contact with the emergency services. And they had witnesses that put Shipman at the scene in and around the time of the deaths. These types of evidence helped to solve the problem posed by the passage of time and the ability to test tissues that had been recovered from the exhumations the police could now go back further than a mere few years to prove Shipman had been killing off his patients for much longer than anyone could have guessed. Nora Nuttall was a typical countrywoman, well known in her area from working in her father's pub. She was overweight and had a number of health problems, but it was a shock to her son when his 64-year-old mother died suddenly in January 1998. She had had a cough, yes, and had visited the doctor that day, but she had seemed well enough. 
There was no record of any calls from Nora to the surgery after she had visited Shipman that morning. But when her son Tony came back to the house that evening, Shipman was there. He said he'd called an ambulance as Nora was seriously unwell. When the two men went into the house, Shipman said she had taken a turn for the worse, and and then he said he went to call the ambulance to cancel it. Nora Nuttall was dead in her armchair. There were no records of any phone calls to the ambulance service from the house that day either. Marie West died in March 1995. She had some mobility issues, having had both of her hips replaced some years before. She had been poorly for a few weeks, having breathing problems, and Shipman had been calling around to her regularly. But despite this, she was a bright and bubbly woman. That morning, her friend and neighbour, Maria Hadfield, had spent the morning with her chatting and watching TV. Just before she left, she popped upstairs to the loo, but when she came out, she heard a man's voice and, realising that the doctor had called, she waited in the kitchen until the consultation was over to give them some privacy. But it went silent in the front room, and then Shipman walked through the door to the kitchen, getting a fright when he saw Mrs. Hadfield there. He said he had thought he was on his own, but also said he had gone looking for Maria's son because Maria was seriously unwell. When the two went back into the front room, he told Mrs. Hadfield that her friend was dead. He had not tried to resuscitate her or call an ambulance. There was no post-mortem ordered, and the cause of death was listed as stroke. Her medical records were found in a box in Shipman's garage. Lizzie Adams was 77 years old and had just returned from a trip to Malta with the local over-50s club when she died. After she got home, she was feeling unwell and so asked for some antibiotics from the surgery. She was prescribed one that didn't agree with her. She was allergic to penicillin, and so she called the surgery back to ask for a new one. Shipman was to call out to her. Her daughter, Doreen, had been out with her the day before, and although her mother wasn't on top form, she certainly didn't seem to be on death's door, just a bit under the weather. Lizzie died while Shipman was in the house. Her friend and dance partner, Bill Catlow, called by the house and found the door open and Shipman inside. He told Bill that Lizzie was seriously unwell and that he had called an ambulance. Bill ran into the room that Lizzie was in, Shipman had apparently just left her there, and they found that Lizzie had died. Shipman cancelled the ambulance and made no attempt to revive the woman. Her daughters were shocked at her passing, but Shipman told them that she had died of pneumonia and had passed peacefully, which isn't the case when someone is having trouble breathing, by the way. No post-mortem was ordered again. Her records were found in a plastic shopping bag in Shipman's garage. The computer records recorded two entries leading up to her death, but they had been created the day after she passed away. The medical records of 68-year-old Pamela Hiller had been seriously doctored also. Six entries had been made after her death to give the appearance of struggling with seriously out-of-control blood pressure in the previous few months. Her daughter had been trying to get her on the phone on the morning of 8th of February 1998, but couldn't get a hold of her. 
She had the neighbour call into her, and Pamela was found dead on the floor of her bedroom. The neighbour tried to resuscitate her and called 999. Shipman said she had had a stroke. The family weren't convinced and objected to the lack of post-mortem, but they eventually dropped the issue. Shipman must have been relieved. On the 18th of February 1998, Shipman made a series of entries into the records of Maureen Ward, detailing a brain tumour and headaches that she did not suffer from. He then went to her house and killed her. She lived in an old folks complex, despite being only 58, and when she died, Shipman called at the caretaker's house, saying that he had found her dead on the bed. She had been in excellent health, despite having dealt with cancer a number of times in the previous years, and was looking forward to a number of holidays. When the caretaker expressed her shock, Shipman informed her that Maureen had had a brain tumour. A recurrence of breast cancer and a brain tumour was listed as her cause of death, which was totally at odds with her last breast check exam. It must be remembered that among this litany of sprightly old ladies, not all Shipman's victims were ladies, nor were they all old. The youngest of his victims was male. New Year's Day 1985, Shipman murdered Peter Lewis. He had been ill with stomach cancer and was being cared for in his own home by the family. Shipman visited often, administering pain medication as required, much like what had happened with his own mother. That day, the family called Shipman out as Peter was in a lot of pain and short of breath. Shipman gave him an injection and was left alone with his patient. When his wife walked back into the bedroom, Shipman had his hand around Peter's throat. He tried to say that he was stopping Peter from swallowing his tongue. After this, he was left alone with him again, and his mother walked in on Shipman holding a pillow over Peter's face. She shrieked at him, but a few minutes later, Peter Lewis was dead. After his injections, his patients died relatively quickly. Diamorphine is basically double-strength morphine and is broken down and absorbed very quickly in the body, even quicker when it's injected straight into the veins, as was Shipman's habit. The pain receptors of the brain gets blocked and breathing slows and eventually stops. It's a very quick, painless passing. This perhaps is the only comforting aspect of the awful spate of murders. As the charges against Shipman accumulated, he was held in Preston Prison. The decision to hold him there, rather than in the more local Strangeways prison, was because, due to the sheer amount of victims, it was possible that other prisoners and staff may have been affected by him. He was sent to Preston for his own safety, and as a Category A prisoner, he was kept under close observation to ensure he didn't harm himself or others. He shared a cell with another murderer, a man who had brutally murdered his girlfriend and two small children, and the two were watched closely. But he eventually moved from Preston to Liverpool, and then back to Strangeways after it was made sure that none of the people who would be in charge of him were related to any of the victims. It was much easier for his family to visit him there. Primrose visited him every day, and his kids visited regularly as well. 
he wrote and received a ton of letters. It was a way for him to keep himself busy. He seemed to revel in the attention that he was getting and wrote to one friend that he had had three book offers and two newspapers wanting to hear his side of the story, though he complained about the fuss that the police seemed to make when transferring him to his hearings in the court, when he was in a van with blacked-out windows and accompanied by a helicopter overhead. In strange ways, he took classes, hygiene and art, and even taught other prisoners himself, maths and philosophy. He doled out medical advice and was called the doctor. But he was also assisting with his own defence, going through the book of evidence and picking through the medical evidence provided by the toxicology reports. He was prepared for the stand by his defence team, and they even arranged to have a medical expert question him, based on the prosecution's case, in order that he would be able to handle any and all questions that might be put to him. He reported being exhausted by the experience, but said that he needed to be prepared in letters that he had written to some who stood by him before the trial. His family, meanwhile, were the subject of the media glare. Primrose refused to make comments for the press and was brusque with the reporters who dared to call at her door. Their children were followed. Even Shipman and Primrose's parents came in for scrutiny. Shipman's trial began on the 5th of October in 1999 in Preston Court. There were no other trials to be held at the time, and a separate courtroom was set aside for the overflow of reporters. The street that the court itself was on was closed to the public at the beginning and end of the trial to accommodate the broadcasting vans and trucks that gathered to get their shots. He was charged with the murders of Joan Melia, Winifred Meller, Bianca Pomfret, Marie Quinn, Ivy Lomas, Irene Turner, Nora Nuttall, Elizabeth Adams, and Maureen Ward, and faced a total of 15 charges. The case was prosecuted by Richard Henriquez, who also worked on the James Bulger case, and was the most senior barrister in the Northwest at the time, with Peter Wright as his junior counsel. Shipman was represented by his solicitor, Anne Ball, Nicola Davies, Queen's counsel, and Ian Winter as junior counsel. Ms. Davies was experienced in the medico-legal sphere. Mr. Justice Thane Forbes was on the bench, and he had been a judge on the Northern Circuit for two and a half years. He was fair and meticulous, and had never had a successful appeal against a conviction of his court at that time. The first four days of the trial were taken up by legal argument, but a jury was finally sworn in on the 11th of October, when seven men and five women took their places in the court. They had been warned that the trial was going to be lengthy and may last up to five months. Henriquez stood for eight hours and gave his opening address. He made it clear that the jury would hear evidence of murder. Speaking of the victims, he said, quote, None of them were prescribed morphine or diamorphine. All of them died most unexpectedly. All of them had seen Dr. Shipman on the day of their death. There is no question of euthanasia, or what is sometimes called mercy killing. None of the deceased were terminally ill. The defendant killed those 15 patients because he enjoyed doing so. He was exercising the ultimate power of controlling life and death, and repeated it so often that he must have found the drama of taking life to his taste. End quote. 
Shipman took notes throughout his trial and would pass notes to his defense team with his comments and questions on it. Angela Woodruff, Kathleen Grundy's daughter, the solicitor who had to deal with her mother's strange will, was the first witness to give evidence. She appeared distressed throughout her time in the witness box, despite her profession, understandably. She was the first of a mass of children, friends, neighbours and companions of the victims of Harold Shipman to take the stand. When the defence tried to question these witnesses, they struggled. Who wants to accuse an older lady of being unreliable or forgetful? It didn't make them sympathetic to the jury. But the only thing that they could do was attempt to discredit the witnesses and imply that they were misremembering or mistaken. A number of experts also took the stand to talk about morphine and how much would be required to overdose, and what its general effects are. The toxicologist who tested the remains that had been exhumed gave evidence that there was no viable alternative source to explain the results of her tests. Chemists from local pharmacies gave evidence of the prescriptions that they had filled for morphine for Dr. Shipman. Many living patients then gave evidence that they had never taken morphine, despite the testimony that prescriptions had been filled by Harold Shipman in their names. Evidence was also given about morphine being taken from the homes of patients who had a syringe driver set up for them, and that ampules and pills of morphine were found in Shipman's home in a bag in the bedroom. The prosecution's case took 25 days, but was interrupted twice for short breaks. The first was caused when a homeless man decided to take refuge from the cold in the courtroom and spent a morning in and out of sleep. Every time he awoke, though, he would bark the word murderer out. Eventually, he yelled it loud enough that the judge heard, and he and the jury retired while a security guard tried to coax the man back out onto the street. As he left, he screamed, Fucking murderer! On the 22nd day of the trial, there was another break due to a bomb threat. The court had to be evacuated and the jury were brought to a hotel down the road. The reporters headed to the pub. The court did not reopen that day, as by the time the scare was over, it was lunchtime and on a Friday afternoon, no less. So the court resumed the following Monday. The defense case started on the 25th of November. Shippen himself took the stand just after noon that day. There were queues for seats in the public gallery that afternoon. Shipman was thin and looked frail and nervous as he outlined his training and his routine in the surgery. As he went on, he became more at ease and his voice became steadier. He had started out speaking in a low, husky whisper. He denied outright the murder of any of the women named in the charge sheet. He said that he had backdated his medical records in some cases, but only to reflect what a patient had said and what had actually happened. He said he hadn't attempted to revive any of the women because he thought that they would have lacked a quality of life should they have recovered. He relished explaining the medical conditions of his dead patients to the judge in court and seemed at some points as if he was giving a lecture to medical students. Shipman described for the court the actions he had taken when Ivy Lomas had passed away in the doctor's surgery. He said he attempted to resuscitate her himself for 15 minutes, and that he never called for help or told the receptionist what had happened because he didn't want the other patients to know what had happened. 
He thought that that would have been inappropriate. He continued to see patients as she lay dead in an examination room. When Nicola Davies sat after her examination of her client, Shippen didn't seem to be expecting it. As the prosecution stood to take on the cross-examination, Shipman told the judge that he felt unwell and he was granted a 15-minute break before he returned, still looking uncomfortable for the beginning of what would be a seven-day cross-examination. He admitted he had a bad habit of over-prescribing morphine, but insisted he didn't know what had happened to the surplus of supply. He also insisted that Mrs. Grundy had been a drug user, but was unable to give an explanation for the presence of morphine in the bodies of his other patients, or the deaths occurring so close in time to his visiting them. The only other witness for the defense was called. Surprisingly, it was a fingerprint expert who spoke about the print evidence that was found on Mrs. Grundy's will. There was no toxicology expert. Shipman had basically accepted that morphine was the cause of death in the patients whose deaths he was charged with and provided no alternative explanation for its presence, giving only an insistence that he had not killed them. On the 13th of December, the judge called a recess and dismissed the jury for their Christmas holidays. The court would resume on the 5th of January with their closing statements. Henriquez took to his feet again and outlined how Shipman had abused the trust that the community had in him as their family doctor. He had falsified medical records and ensured that no post-mortem would take place for his victims. He said, quote, The poisoner fears pathology, ambulances, and hospitals, end quote, all things that Shipman avoided and advised grieving families against. When his learned friend Nicola Davies stood, she described a dedicated and, quote, caring if idiosyncratic doctor, end quote. He was hardworking and approachable and thought nothing of going above and beyond visiting his patients in their home. His paperwork, however, did not get the same attention, and this was not something he kept on top of, trying to explain the backdated entries. She said, there was no motive for the killings that someone as educated as Shipman would never have made such a clumsy forgery such as the letters and Grundy's will, and that the toxicological evidence was unreliable, as it had used some new techniques. The judge's summing up began on the 10th of January. He told the jury that these were very serious charges, and some of the evidence that they had heard was emotive. But they were to put their feelings aside and, quote, consider the facts dispassionately, end quote, The charges were to be considered in isolation from one another, not as a group. He went over the evidence that had been heard. That took two weeks. On the 24th of January, the jury finally retired to consider their verdict. A full week later, they returned to the courtroom at half-past four. Their verdicts were in, and they were unanimous. Harold Frederick Shipman was found guilty on all 15 charges of murder and the count of forgery. Harold and Primrose remained stoic during the verdict. His sons who were present winced and sank lower in their seats. Not only did Justice Forbes sentence Shipman to 15 life sentences and four years for forgery, he broke with custom and in open court rather than by letter, and in open court rather than by letter, recommended that Shipman serve a full-life term, 
This meant that he would spend the remainder of his life behind bars. As Shipman was led away, Forbes then addressed the families of the victims sitting in the public gallery and acknowledged the dignity and strength it had taken to give evidence and to attend the trial. Bizarrely, as he finished speaking, there was a scattered round of applause from the public gallery. Journalists rushed from the courtroom as the judge finished up, trying to make sure that they got their copy and their broadcasts ready in time for that evening or the next morning's news. The headlines that followed, which the press had been barred from using previously, were predictable. Dr. Death, screamed one. Britain's worst serial killer. And murder at bedside. That sort of thing. Shipman went on suicide watch directly after the verdict, and his family retreated back to the house in Rowcross Green. But they would not be cowed by media attention. Primrose was pictured with tears on her cheek. They left their curtains open and had visitors to the house. Their visits to their father and husband were now curtailed. Now that he had been sentenced, they could only see him once a week. Many of those who had written to Shipman before and during the trial cut off communication with him once the verdict had come in. The house in Rowcross Green was sold in order to pay for his defence, and Primrose moved about quite a lot after, moving on again each time when the press found her next bolt hole. The visits with his family now took place in Franklin Prison, where Shipman had been moved a month after sentencing. It housed career criminals, but although these people were serving long sentences in a maximum security prison, they were all relatively normal men, with wives and children and everyday concerns. It wasn't a dangerous place, and Shipman soon settled in there. There was a good library, and he had a TV in his cell, with satellite. Eventually, however, He was moved to the notorious Wakefield prison, a far less ideal place to be housed due to the nature of the crimes committed by the inmates who ended up there. It has a reputation for housing the worst of the worst, and takes a large amount of men who have committed crimes of a sexual nature. The regime is much more strict, less visiting time, less time to use the phones or associate with other inmates. Shipman did not get on well here, and was often in the medical ward, and he was put on suicide watch a number of times. He liked to work in the medical ward, though, and when word got out that he was helping to take care of other prisoners in a medical setting, there was a public outcry. He went about attempting to file an appeal, but this proved more difficult than one might think. The firm he had used in his trial didn't do appeals, and many of the other solicitors in Manchester were dealing with the victims of his crimes for compensation. His son went to 20 solicitors' firms in London, and each one turned him down once they heard who their client would be. Finally, when a firm of solicitors agreed to take on his case, they took delivery of 40 boxes of documents in the case file. But in the end, nothing came of it. In the aftermath of the trial, the Department of Health announced that they planned to ensure that doctors had to disclose any criminal convictions that they may have had, and that GPs would be required to notify them if a death occurred on their premises, that a review of the death certification procedures was to take place, and that there was to be a full-scale inquiry into the Shipman case. 
They thought that this might go some way to provide a resolution to the other families who suspected Shipman of having a hand in their relatives' deaths. Some did not have to wait until the inquiry began to get answers, however. Twenty-seven further inquests were held into deaths deemed suspicious by the police, and the coroner recorded verdicts of unlawful killing in each case. Shipman refused to participate, though he was informed about the proceedings and was entitled to attend. While these inquests were ongoing, the police in Manchester and West Yorkshire, near Todmorden, where Shipman had started his medical career, were investigating other deaths. Manchester alone investigated a further 192 by January of 2001. They had another 23 cases ready to be brought. A report into Shipman's clinical practice was also released. That report, the Baker Report, concluded that 265 patients of Shipman's had been unlawfully killed by him. Professor Baker, who had carried out the audit, identified a further 60 cases that the police were as yet unaware of, and so formal investigations into those deaths also began. When it was announced that the Shipman inquiry would take place in camera, that is, without the press or public present, 53 of the families band together and hired a lawyer to represent them, demanding that the inquiry be held in public. They were successful. Work began on the inquiry in January 2001, and Dame Janet Smith, a former Queen's counsel who dealt with medical legal cases and personal injury law before being made a judge, headed up the inquiry. She would go on to do the same for the Jimmy Savile affair. Its terms of reference were to consider the extent of Shipman's unlawful activities, and Dame Janet interpreted this as a need to investigate each suspicious death in order that the families might be able to get some sort of closure from the process. They also addressed a number of other issues, such as the investigation of sudden deaths, disciplinary rules for doctors, the monitoring of mortality rates, and the procedures for storing and disposing of controlled drugs. By June of that year, the first phase of the inquiry began, and the task of investigating 887 deaths that Shipman had had some involvement in started. Written decisions were given in 493 cases. In the rest, it was decided that Shipman could not have caused the deaths. Thousands of witness statements were taken by the police and were taken into consideration, in conjunction with 1,300 further statements taken by the inquiry itself. They looked at medical records, call records, ambulance logs, and anything that might have been noted about the deceased in relation to their health in the run-up to their death. Oral evidence was heard in relation to 65 deaths, and this was heard by the inquiry between June 2001 and April 2002. 428 deaths were considered by Jane Janet on documents alone, and whose evidence was posted on a specially maintained inquiry website. Harold Shipman refused to be involved with the inquiry. He was asked to attend and refused. Dame Janet Smith could have compelled him to attend, but had he still refused to do so, the only ramification for him would have been a jail sentence not too much of an incentive for someone serving 15 life sentences. They sent him a list of names of patients that they would be looking into, giving him an opportunity to comment. Again, he declined. The same could not be said for Primrose. 
she was indeed compelled to attend the inquiry, and the request of her solicitor to give evidence by video link was denied. She was assured by the Attorney General that she would not face prosecution for anything she said at the inquiry, except if she gave false statements, nor would anything she said be admissible in court against her husband. She appeared before the inquiry on Friday the 16th of November 2001, and as might be predicted, the press and public turned out to hear what she had to say, which, unfortunately, was quite boring. She had been present at the homes of Irene Chapman and Joyce Woodhead when they died, and at the incident involving Elaine Oswald, who had been rushed to hospital. But she said she couldn't remember, or was confused, or she wasn't sure for most of her two and a half hours in the witness box. She said she was still convinced of her husband's innocence. She did, however, hand up documents to the inquiry, which turned out to be of great assistance to Dame Janet in making her decisions. They were records of Shipman's time in Donnybrook, his visit books from 1979 to 1992, which she had stored after the surgery was cleared out. On the 19th of July 2002, the Shipman inquiry published its first report, where 215 deaths were attributed to Shipman, with another 45 declared suspicious. The next July, the second installment of the report, this time into the first failed police investigation, was published by the inquiry. The third report was published at the same time. It recommended the establishment of a new, properly resourced coroner service, which would be responsible for all post-death procedures. They would have more flexible powers to investigate deaths, and would now require three sources of information about deaths, a medical professional who attended at the scene, a doctor who knew the medical history of the patient, and, crucially, a relative or associate of the deceased. The fourth report, dealing with the regulation of controlled drugs, was published in July 2004, and the fifth followed that December, relating to patient safety and contained recommendations for complaints procedures against GPs. On Tuesday the 13th of January 2004, routine checks of the prisoners in Wakefield began at 5am. All was well. At the next check, an hour later, when the prison guard looked through the spy hole into Shipman's cell, all he saw was dangling legs. Harold Shipman hanged himself using a sheet from his bedding. He had timed things perfectly so as to ensure his death. He was in control to the last. He died a day before his 58th birthday. Shipman had worked out that, even though his pension had been stopped upon his conviction, that if he died before his 60th birthday, his wife would still be able to claim £100,000 as a lump sum and have £10,000 per year as a pension. He had it all figured out, and he was determined to keep his promise to take care of her. It has been reported that his family have received new identities since his death. The Shipman inquiry made many recommendations that would attempt to ensure patient safeguarding going forward, but the horrifying reality is that it is entirely possible for a GP to commit such heinous acts again. One researcher states that it would take up to 30 such killings to come to the attention of authorities today in the UK such as the trust given to the family doctor and their ability to get close to victims that it's difficult to say with any certainty that such crimes will never occur again. Psychiatrists that assisted in the inquiry speculated 
because of course Shipman would not speak directly to them, that he had a personality disorder. He became fixated on opiates and their effects, and may have then become addicted to doing away with elderly patients. But even then, he picked his victims carefully in the beginning, and may have even wanted to be caught subconsciously when he made the shoddy forgery of Kathleen Grundy's will. This, unfortunately, is about as close as anyone has gotten to explaining Shipman's otherwise senseless crimes. Not only does Shipman stand responsible for hundreds of deaths, he is also responsible for the betrayal of trust given his position as a doctor and tearing apart the community of Hyde. There were few people that didn't have some sort of connection to Shipman's victims, whether they be family, neighbours or friends. Shipman may be dead, but the effect that he had on his community, his country and the world continues. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. It really does help others to find us and I love to hear what you think. You can also find us on Twitter and on Facebook at Mens Rea Pod. And check out our discussion group on Facebook, too, for links to articles and pictures from the cases that we cover. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. A special thanks this week to Melissa Fogel, one of our more recent patrons. Your support means a lot, and it helps to cover some of the costs of the production of the show. There are some nice little perks, including bonus content, now available. The first mini guilt trip is about Brian Murphy, a young student who lost his life outside a popular Southside nightclub, and it's available now to patrons like Melissa who are donating $5 or more. But there is stuff for everybody. Any small contribution helps. Go check it out. And now to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. To Foofix... Sorry it's taken so long to get around to you. I know it's a while since you left your review. Thank you very much for your five stars. Thank you to Koo73. Hopefully we have the sound problems fixed by now. It's been a while since you left your review as well. And thank you to Kent Park Street. Thanks for your compliments about the production, research and presentation. And finally, thank you to Good Nightmares, the podcast. It really is an excellent podcast, and I would recommend that you go out and check Good Nightmares out. The stories and the production value are really, really very good. Next time on the Men's Rare podcast, we're going to look at a case where an elderly farmer gets in trouble for confronting trespassers on his land. Our theme song is Quinn Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod, with thanks to Rona McHugh for help with sound engineering, and assistance this week from Gilgamesh the Cat, Schrodinger the cat, and Amelia, my three-year-old. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. Why?